Man, am I glad to be back. I'm happy to see you all today. Uh, we had a great vacation. If you're wondering, uh, we went up to Williamsburg, Virginia, my family and I. I'm a big history buff. Uh, I'm not so sure about my family, but I like history, and so I wanted them to experience colonial Williamsburg. Well, I say that, uh, you know, I don't know about my family, but my, my 12-year-old, this was something that was interesting. My 12-year-old, Grayson, a few months ago, he went to church camp. He went to the journey camp down in Georgia. And one of the themed days that they have at the journey camp is called Holiday Day. And so the idea is that, that the kids, the campers, are supposed to wear something in conjunction with their favorite holiday. And so I think the expectation is that kids would show up in some kind of Christmas regalia or Easter or Thanksgiving or maybe even Halloween or something like that. My son decides... I'm going to commemorate George Washington's birthday. That's the kind of kid I've got, you know. And so he asked my wife, his mother, if she would order him a George Washington costume. And she said, I'll tell you what, I will buy you a George Washington costume if you promise to wear it to Colonial Williamsburg on vacation. And he said, you have yourself a deal. And so my 12-year-old son, in 103-degree heat, we didn't make him do it, but he wore it, full regalia, powdered wig, three-point hat, buckle shoes, the whole nine yards, walking around Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, how about that? And in case you were wondering, yes, we did bump into the actor that plays the adult George Washington. And so we had Big George, Little George there together. It was very patriotic. And... Uh, they were ready to cross the Delaware. It was awesome. Uh, I did not subject my kids to history every day of this vacation. Uh, I, did, I didn't tell them, but I got tickets to Bush Gardens. And so, yeah, uh, I, should we make a church trip or something to Bush Gardens? Okay. <laughs> I've heard of Holy Rollers. But anyway, um, I didn't tell them that we were going. And so one night I said, I said, are we going back to Williamsburg tomorrow? I said, no. I said, we're going to Bush Gardens. Well, it didn't dawn on me that they wouldn't know what that was. And so my kids are like, Dad, we don't want to look at a bunch of bushes and gardens. You know? So it was fun. They went back every night. They rode their coasters. It was great. I'm excited to be back, though. And one of the reasons I'm excited to be back is I have a very special announcement to you. Now, when I got here in November, I noticed several needs that I observed in our church and one of the needs that we have is a ministry of this size, church of this size, staff of this size, budget of this size. It would have been very helpful to have someone dedicated uh, in an administrative position that was pastoral, that, could, that, that had experience with a, a larger ministry, perhaps that had a, a school involved, as we do, and that could really help develop leaders on the staff. And I began to pray about that, and the elders began to pray about that, and we started to search for what's called an executive pastor, an administrative pastor. And it's very important you get the right individual for a role like that. And so we asked God to show us who the right person was. And so we spent several months talking about that, praying about that, looking. And I'm excited to tell you that we found the right person. And so I would like to invite you to give a warm Lamb's Chapel welcome to Bobby Fisher and his wife, Jill. He is coming on board as our brand new executive pastor, and uh, Bobby and I have known each other uh, for several years. Here's the cool thing. Many, many mango seasons. Many seasons, that's right. Here's what I didn't know. I did not realize, or I didn't remember, that Bobby lived in Charlotte, of all places. And so, 
Uh, here he was in North Carolina. We, we reconnected a couple of months ago, and we started talking, and God really orchestrated everything. This man loves Jesus, and uh, he's got tons of experience, and we're just so grateful to have him. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Bobby, anything you want to share with this new church family? Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> hey, thank you. It is really good to be here. It's an honor to be here, and uh, didn't see this coming uh, a few months ago. Jill and I came to Charlotte four years ago. I'd retired out of 20-plus years of ministry doing this job, being an executive pastor. It's what I'm called to do, and I thought I was done, and uh, the first two years seemed like a lot of fun. Uh, I golfed a lot, and I curled a lot, and <laughs> then I golfed, and then I curled. And uh, do they know you know what curling is? Yeah, you all know it. Okay, all right. Sliding the rock. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm a I'm a curler. So and I I do enjoy it. But after two years of doing that, it just struck me that I I think there's something more that God might be calling me to something more. And realizing that I thought I'd retired and then I Mm -hmm. thought I was just on a hiatus. And really for the last couple of years, uh, I've been praying and hoping and wishing a little bit saying, God, is, is this all there is for me? Yeah. Is there something else that you have for me? And uh, uh, I, honestly, about six months ago, I was like going, okay, maybe I'm done, all right? And that's okay if that's what God has for me. And then uh, this man and I reconnected, and uh, it was like, wow, I am called to a great church to work with somebody that I know and respect <laughs> And uh, God has just answered our prayers. Amen. And so we are so glad to be here. And I, I know I speak for my wife, Jill, saying the same thing. We are just so happy to be here. And thank you for the welcome. Amen. Don't you love how, isn't it awesome when the Holy Spirit works and just orchestrates everything? When he does what we can't plan ourselves. And so it's, it's been a really awesome thing to watch. Uh, as I said, Bobby brings a lot of experience to the table. Uh, he's, he's been over a ministry that, that had a school just like we do. And so he's already jumped in with both feet. He's connected with the staff. They love this guy. And he's already making a big impact on our ministry. And so we're grateful for him. Let's pray for this man and for Jill as well right now. Heavenly Father, we're so excited about where you're leading us, God. And we just want to be obedient to you. And we want to be good stewards of this church. And we want to put in place the things that are are really going to be ideal uh, by your design to help make a way toward achieving the ultimate end of making disciples. That's what we're all about here, God. We want to follow your lead and be obedient to that. And we pray your blessing upon Bobby as he leads. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 One more time for the Fishers, folks. Thank you so much. Well, it's exciting to see what God is doing. We're going to be letting you know about all kinds of things in the weeks to come. You're going to hear about small groups. That's very exciting. We're going to start a new program on Sundays during our services called uh, Next Steps, which will serve to inform and invite people into community here at the Lamb's Chapel, areas of service. You're going to learn about how you're gifted and, and made and designed by God for, uh, for, for service in the body. And uh, so we are going places and we're doing our best to follow the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all with a view to discipleship. And part of discipleship is opening his word. So would you do that with me right now as we look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start today in verse 45. And I got a message for you today, and this message involves an incident that the disciples find themselves in 
where they encounter a storm. How many of you have been through a storm in life? Some of you are like, I'm drowning right now, Pastor Scott. Now, when I look at this story that we're going to dive into today, these disciples are in peril on the sea. And you would think, well, that's an interesting story. But you know what's really interesting is that this is not the first time that they find themselves in a storm. In fact, if you jump back a couple of chapters, they're in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is with them. He's in the boat in Mark chapter 4. He's asleep, and a windstorm arises, and waves crash into this little vessel, and they panic, and they shake him, wake him up. Master, aren't you concerned that we're perishing? And Jesus speaks peace to the wind and to the waves, and it all becomes still. And you could read that story in Mark chapter 4, and you could think, well, there you go, lesson learned. Trust Jesus in a storm, and all will be well. Let's move on to the next theme. But then here you've got them in a storm again, just two chapters later. Now, isn't that how life is? When you go through a storm in life and you weather that storm, does that mean that's the last time you're ever going to face that? No, we, we, we need to remember things because we're going to increasingly face storms as we journey through life. Scripture is very clear about that. In this world, you will have trouble, but fear not. I have overcome the world. So let's look at this account right here, Mark chapter 6. I'm just going to read it through from beginning to end, and then we're going to dive back in and kind of tear it up. So in verse 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now that last verse, that line, they did not understand about the loaves, if you're just reading this story on its own, that kind of comes out of left field. What does that refer to? Well, it refers to an event that came just prior to the text that we're reading this morning. There was an event that they had just come through that is a very popular story. In fact, it appears in all four Gospels, and it's called the Feeding of the 5,000. And we know this story. That's a bit of a misnomer, the Feeding of the 5,000, because we know in those days when you had a crowd, uh, the Jewish approach was to just count the men. They were a little chauvinistic in how they counted a crowd. And so we know there were women, there were children there. So many scholars say in that multitude that Christ spoke to, there was probably between fifteen and 20,000 people. And so we know how that story goes. But that story is linked to the story that we're looking at today. That's our backdrop today. And that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the first miracle performed by Christ where he involves his disciples they come to him, they give him what they have, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and he sends them out to the people. 
And when I think of that sequence, I think that this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually a beautiful picture of the Great Commission. We come to Christ and we say, here is all we have. We give you everything. And he blesses it. And he, there's a breaking that takes place. And then he sends us out to the people. And we take that blessing out to the nations. And it's a beautiful picture of that. And so when this miracle of the feeding of the multitude happens, this is the pinnacle of Christ's popularity. Months have led up to this moment right here. There have been miracle upon miracle. There's been sermon after sermon. And so when he performs this miracle, this is the biggest miracle these people have ever seen. And they are out of their minds excited about Jesus. They are zealous about what he represents to them. Why is that? Well, you got to remember their mindset. They are under the thumb of Rome. You see, they're subjugated by the Roman Empire. So they're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a liberator. They want a military leader. They're looking for somebody that can overthrow Rome. Well, who better than this guy? I mean, Rome, if they, wanna, if they want to uh, you know, kill us, Jesus can raise us from the dead. If they want to starve us, tax us into oblivion, Jesus could just make food indefinitely. And not just make food, but he'll stuff us to the point of gluttony, as we've just experienced right here. And so they come, and in John's gospel, it says they're so excited that they come to take him and make him king by force. That's what it says. Now, Jesus doesn't want any part of this because he has not come to be a political liberator. He has not come to start a revolution. He has not come to overthrow anybody. He didn't come to kill. He came to die. He came to lay down his life. These people don't want spiritual things. They want earthly things. They want physical things. They want temporal things. He is all about the eternal. And so he rejects their enthronement right there. And so later, you're going to have a, a formal confrontation between Christ and this very crowd. You're going to see that later in the book of Mark at a place called Capernaum. He's going to rebuke this crowd, and he's going to say to them, in light of having supplied them with bread and loaves and all that, he's going to say, look, you're interested in physical bread. This is the bread of life. You partake of this, and then you will have eternal life. And that just, that just weirds them out. They're like, we don't understand that. We just want physical bread. If you're not going to give us bread, we're out of here. And they leave. And many of Christ's own followers also leave until all that's left are 12 guys, the 12 disciples. And Jesus turns to Peter and company and he says, you going to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this is a watershed moment for these disciples. Because they, in their flesh, wanted the same thing that the crowd wanted. They could relate to that crowd's needs and desires, but something has happened. Something has brought them from a place of looking for a liberator to now trusting in Christ for the eternal. What is it that brought them from point A to point B? It's what we're going to read about today. This event in between the feeding of the multitude and that moment of truth when Peter says, where would we go but to you, Lord? Something happens. They're going to encounter a storm. And that storm is going to be transformative in their life. You and I go through storms. And what God wants us to understand is those storms can transform us as well if we will remember 
certain things. And I'm going to give you today seven things to remember about Christ when we're in a storm. Not seven things to remember about us, okay? Not about you. Not things about the storm. You got to remember things about Jesus. And the first thing you got to remember in your notes, number one, is that Jesus has all authority. He's got all authority. Look at verse 45. We're just going to break this down line by line. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And so his authority, there are facets of that authority. And, and the first facet is that he has authority in your notes over his followers, over his followers. Are you a follower of Christ? He has authority in your life. Are you living under his authority? Jesus makes his disciples get in that boat. Why does he make them get in that boat? Because this crowd has a, has a political fervor. This crowd is pursuing Christ for the wrong reason. They want liberation. And he knows these disciples can be susceptible to that message. For some of these guys, it's what they want. For some of them, it's all they want. It's why they signed up. I'm thinking of Judas. I'm thinking of Simon uh, the Zealot, right? This is what they want. So they are uh, susceptible to that line of thinking. And so Christ says, not for you. You get in that boat right now. And you go across the lake to Bethsaida. I want to get you as far away as I can from this mob over here. I don't want you tainted. And so they get in. Whether they like it or not, they get in that boat because they are under authority. He's got authority over them. Meanwhile, look what's happening. They leave, and it goes on to say, while he dismissed the crowd. And so not only, not only does he have authority over his followers, he's got authority, in your notes, over the world. He has authority over everything. Is there any limit to the authority of our God? He commands it all. These, these people in this crowd, these are not his followers. They, oh, they followed him physically. They've, they've, they've followed him all over the Galilee region, but they're just looking for miracles. They just want the handouts, you see. They've got the wrong motivation. They're not really following him. And here he commands them to disperse. And I want you to understand something. That is a miracle. The walking on the water is not the only miracle in this story. He disperses this crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people. That's a miracle, my friends. You think that's easy? He just dismisses them. Folks, I can't even dismiss my kids to bed, you know, without an hour of shenanigans, you know. Uh, they just dissipate into the evening mist. They just wander off. Because he told them to. That's, that's authority. That's power. Okay? And this story here is kind of like the church age. You got these followers of Christ. They've just fed the multitude and now he sends them out. That's like us. That's now. And when they go out, he's not physically with them. That's, that's like us. That's now. He's not physically with us. And when they go out, contrary winds will arise and they will encounter hardship that's like now. That's the age in which we live. It's going to get dark. They're going to encounter difficulty. It's going to be frightening. They're going to be in a heap of trouble. How many of you know the Christian life is not a piece of cake? If anybody ever told you, hey, just trust in Christ and all your problems will go away, they were lying. Right? They were lying. If, it, if people come up in a religious system where they're taught that if you follow Jesus... 
all your problems will go away. Eventually, those people, first of all, that faith is not authentic. And eventually, they will walk away from it. Because that is not the promise of Christ. Okay? The will of God is not for us to always be happy and healthy and wealthy and all that stuff out of, out of a prosperity doctrine. His desire for us is to find our sufficiency in him in spite of the things that we encounter and that we can have victory through Jesus in a spiritual sense. And so we know this world that we live in is a messed up, dark, nasty world. This is not the best of all possible worlds. We're on the way to the best of all possible worlds. But we're not there yet. And so we got to be faithful. And uh, that is what this is like. But we are promised difficulty. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 1, 2, count it all joy. Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Listen to me. The trials that we go through are used to reveal who the real child of God is. The trials that we go through are used to reveal who the real child of God is. Okay? And that's what we're going to look at today. I want you to understand, when, when Christ gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, how does he begin? Does he start with the instruction? No, he starts in Matthew 28, 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's where we begin. See, you start recognizing his authority. Now you can obey the command. When you know where the power comes from, you obey that instruction. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Who's going to do that? We are baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, he starts with his authority and he ends with, I am with you always. And in the middle is what we are to do. But we begin with his authority and we know we're not alone. Amen? And so uh, that's where we are in this text And we are finding these disciples in a tough time just as we find ourselves. But let's look at what happens here. In verse 46, it says, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. Now, here's the next thing you need to remember in a storm. In your notes, Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. You say, that's a long word. Then just write praise. All right, same thing. He intercedes. He prays. He goes up on this mountain and he prays. Praise. And when I say praise, I mean praise. This is not, you know, bedtime prayer. This is not uh, in your small group when you, you break up into groups of two or three and we each say a few lines and that's our prayer. No, this is all night long, fervent, agonizing prayer. And he's praying for what? Wrong question. For who? He's praying for these disciples. He's praying for these 12 guys. Why? Because if you know anything about the story of the feeding of the multitude, you know that these disciples have a faith problem. They've got a heart problem. Remember the last line in our text? They had not understood about the loaves. You know what that means? When that multitude was there and they were getting hungry in the middle of the day, disciples come to Christ. They're like, they're getting hungry. He's like, feed them. Well, all we got is this lunch. From this little boy, there's, you know, five loaves, two fishes. What, what, what is that? 
among so many. Jesus must have been thinking, uh, hello. You know who you're talking to here? They'd been with him. They'd seen his work. They were with him at the first miracle in Cana. He turned water into wine. They'd seen him do this and do this and do that. And here they're still doubting. They had a faith problem. So for this reason, Christ is praying for them. And he prays for you. You need to know that. Whatever you're going through in life, he is praying for you, interceding. Hebrews 7.25 says that he lives to make intercession for the saints. Romans 8.26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's in Luke's gospel. Jesus comes to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, this will freak you out. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. <sighs> Dude, was it, would that send a shiver down your spine if you're Peter? Satan wants to sift me like wheat? What's the next thing you want to hear from Jesus? Oh, but don't worry. I told him no. That's not what he says. Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Because Jesus knows that's our greatest need. We need more faith. Always more faith. So where is everybody at this point in the story? Look at verse 47. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, is what it says. Verse 48, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw them. I think we need to remember this. In your notes, number three, Jesus watches us. He watches us. Not in a creepy stalker kind of way. Every breath you take. Not, not like that. Not in a, I got my eye on you, you better not screw up kind of way. No, he watches in a fatherly, shepherding kind of way. You know? Like, like a parent whose eyes are, they never leave your, your little ones, right? When you go to the beach and you got little ones, you watch them like a hawk, don't you? Right? Your Father in heaven watches you, and here we see Jesus watching them. Sometimes we think, does God see what I'm going through? Some of you have wondered that this week. Does he know? Does he care? Is he aware? Let me tell you something. There is nothing that you are going through that he's not aware of. He was aware of it before you were. I promise you that. And he sees you. And Jesus sees these disciples. Now, that is, that's another miracle. Where is he? He's on a mountain. Where are they? They're on the lake. They're like four miles offshore. I don't know how far inland Christ is, but he's up on a mountain and he sees them. Now, some people may say, well, you know, he's got a good vantage point. He's up high and, you know, he, he can purvey the, the, the whole uh, seascape there. No, no. I've been to Galilee at night, that lake is a black hole at night. I, I was on the 11th floor of a hotel. My balcony overlooked the Sea of Galilee. I went out there at night. I couldn't see a blessed thing. You can't see nothing at nighttime. It is dark. It is a void, okay? So Christ has no business being able to see them, and yet he does. How so? The same way God sees you, supernaturally, through his omniscience. And he sees what they're going through. 
And it says, in about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Oh, we need to remember that. In your notes, number four, Jesus comes to us in our need. He will come to you. This says he came to them about the fourth watch. What does that mean? What is the fourth watch? Well, this, this refers to the way that the Jews chronologically divided the evening. There was something called the watches of the night. I'm going to show you this on the screen here. The watches of the night divided up like this. You had the first watch. That's 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's three hours. You got the second watch. That's 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch is 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And then the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, you're, you're doing the math in your head. When does Jesus come to them? The fourth watch is when he came. Not until the fourth watch. When did he first see them struggling against the waves and the wind? It says in verse 47, in early evening. That would be the first watch, all right? So how long did he wait to come to their aid? Like 12 hours. So what does this tell us? I think we need to remember this too. In, in your notes, number five, Jesus chooses the timing and the manner of his coming. He chooses it. We don't choose it. How many of you know, sometimes you pray and he does not immediately answer. Is that true? You're like, yeah. 12 hours he let them struggle. Why? Why did he wait so long? Well, remember, these guys have a heart condition. They need to come to the end of themselves. They need to hit rock bottom. They hadn't understood about the provision of the Lord. Sometimes when we're in a storm, we need to struggle more than we need to be delivered. Okay? Now, listen to me. That does not mean that whatever you're going through is a punishment. That does not mean that God is laying that on you because you've done something wrong. That's not what that means. What it means is we have a sovereign God who is able to use the trials and the tribulations of this fallen world that we live in for his purposes in our lives. And we need to ask certain questions. When you encounter trouble, when you encounter a storm, and you will, if you haven't yet, buckle up. When you do, there are some constructive questions that you need to be asking. You need to be asking, what, what can I learn from this? What does God want to teach me through this because he's sovereign and he can use any disaster, any hardship for his glory. We should always be asking questions like this so we can learn through the storm. So he comes in his timing, but he does come. And what is the manner in which he comes? He comes in a very significant way. He walks on the water. He walks on the water. Now throughout biblical times, the sea represented scary things to the Jews. It, it represented the unknown. It, it, was, it was frightening. It was mighty. It was powerful. It was daunting. Uh, they didn't know what was down there. The Jews were not known as, as great sailors out on the open ocean. This is not the ocean. This is a lake, Galilee. But man, the wind can really whip that thing up. But they didn't know what was beneath the surface. There were no submarines. Nobody had any scuba gear. They didn't know what was down there, right? And by the way, that's what's scary about the ocean. My wife doesn't like to go in the ocean. She grew up in California. We, we took a trip to Santa Cruz a few years ago, and I saw on the news the morning we were going to go, 
I saw on the news that there had been a shark sighting, and I told the kids, I go, do not tell your mother. Do not Because here's the thing. Whether they see them or not, they're always there. They're always there. So we don't know what's beneath the surface. And that's what it represented to uh, the Jews of that day. And so he, he's, he's got this, this thing that is the source of consternation to the disciples. It is daunting. It is tempestuous. It is intimidating. It is fearsome. And so Christ comes and he walks on it. And he walks upon it as though he is communicating to these guys that thing that is so scary to you, that is causing such concern to you. I'm going to put it under my feet. I'm going to tread upon it. I'm going to make it my pathway. That is authority right there. That is power right there. And he moves. And I can picture Christ doing this, moving at supernatural speed. Okay, I don't think it's an evening stroll. I think he is coming swiftly to their aid once he determines to do that. And uh, he is smoothing out the turbulence on that ocean with his every divine footstep. And I can picture him totally untossed, completely dry, despite the waves. And he goes right to them. He knows exactly where they are. He has their exact coordinates. He's not surfing around that lake looking for them. He knows where they are. And he comes right up along that vessel, right up alongside it. And he can see see them and he knows they can see him but what does it say in verse uh in that verse 47 it says that he meant to pass them he meant to pass by them why well no we have not heard the disciples call out to him yet they have not cried out to god they have not cried out for the lord now make no mistake he's not going to let them die he's not going to abandon them those guys in that boat represent uh, the means through which the gospel is going to go out to the nations. He's not going to leave them to perish, but he does want to hear them cry out to him. And sometimes that is what the Lord is waiting for us to do. He wants our dependence on him. But look what happens next. It says, but immediately he spoke to them. Excuse me, in verse 49, it says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. These grown men cried out. The word in the Greek that is used there, you could, you could best translate it as, they screamed like little girls. <laughs> all right? These hardened fishermen, these big strapping guys, you know? And they look out and they see this man on the waves just standing there. They didn't expect to see that. That's the last thing they would expect to see. And they think he's a ghost. The Greek word is phantasma. Phantasm. Phantom. Right? And there was a superstition among the fishermen in that day that if you saw a spirit at night, it indicated disaster was about to strike. And so they see this, what they think is an apparition, and they think, we're all going to die. And they, they cry out. When we're in a storm, when we're in the trials of life, are we prone to superstition? Do, do, we, do we fear the worst? Do we abandon all hope? Do we often think things and believe things that are not so? We forget all about the provision and the salvation that we have access to. Now, I love what comes next. It says, but immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't let their fear take hold for long. And number six in your notes, we got to remember, Jesus cares for us. He cares for us. Do you know that? I want to say that to you. He cares for you. You need to know that. Some of you have been in dire straits this week. You're, you're, in, a, you're in a fix. You need to know that your Lord loves you. He cares for you more than you can fathom. And he wants you to know he's there with you. You're not alone. And you don't need to be afraid. I've heard it said that there are 365 variations of fear not in Scripture. Well, that's one for every day of the year. That means I can wake up every morning and I can know his mercies are new and I don't need to be afraid of nothing. I don't have to be afraid of my boss. I don't need to be afraid of, of, uh, of cancer. I don't need to be afraid of the economy. I don't need to be afraid of who's in the White House. No matter who it is. And Jesus comes to Paul in Corinth in Acts 18. He appears to him. In the night, in a vision, he says, do not be afraid, go on speaking. You keep opening your mouth, Paul. He comes to him when he's in jail in Jerusalem. In Acts 23, he says, take courage. You must testify in Rome. He comes to him on a prison ship. In Acts 27, he says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Folks, you've got a mantle on your life as a believer, and you need to know that you have no need to fear. You can be faithful, whether you're in Corinth, you're in jail in Jerusalem, or you're adrift on the sea like Paul on a prison ship, or these 12 guys. And this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the promise that we have. He will make our trial the path for his feet. Now, between verse 50 and verse 51, there's something that takes place that this gospel does not tell us about. And so that's why we've got four gospels. And so we can go to the book of Matthew. I want you to look at Matthew 14 with me. This is what happens. Right after the Lord appears to them on the sea and says, do not fear, it is I. It says in Matthew 14, 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. You could always count on Peter to be the first one. All right, And so he gives us an example. So we got an example here, all right? And so what I want you to see in your notes is to stay above the waves. When you're in a storm, here's how you stay above the waves. First of all, we must, in your notes, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. You gotta do this. You can't stay in that boat anymore. What does that boat represent? That represents all your human ingenuity. It represents your own, self of, your own sense of self-sufficiency. It's your reliance on your own talent, on your own intellect, on your own man-made provision. These guys knew the water, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they were fishermen, so they're relying on the strength of their biceps to work those oars, their, their experience on the water. It wasn't going to be enough. Jesus says, come to me. You, 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 you stop relying on that vessel. You stop relying on your, your, your seaworthiness. And you look to me because, brother, I'm your only shot. I'm your only hope right here. It says, so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So you got to get out of the boat. And then in your notes, you draw near to Christ. 
You move toward him. Peter starts toward Christ. This is what we've got to do. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You say, well, he already lives in my heart, Pastor Scott. How much more near to him can I be? Listen, he may live in your heart, but for the Christian, what we're talking about here, this is a matter of you acknowledging that he is with you, but now it's you engaging in that relationship with him. That means you live like he's right there. Sometimes we we know Christ in a salvific way, but we don't always act like it, do we? We trust him for our eternity, but we don't trust him for our right here, right now. And this is saying, you get out of the boat and you draw near to Christ. And Peter moves toward Jesus and grace is shown to him. He's being held up. Christ is sustaining him above the waves as Peter walks on the water, as he moves toward Christ. But then what happens? We know what happens. Verse 30 It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You see what happened? He took his focus off the solution and he put it on the problem. And he began to sink. And then he cried out, hey, do we ever do that? We know who the solution is, but sometimes our our attention, we get distracted, we start looking at what's going wrong in our life, and we start to wring our hands, and we start to worry, and we start to fret, and we start to think about what we can do about it and what we can't do about it, and meanwhile, we forget the sufficiency that we have in Christ, and that's what's happening to Peter, and he sinks because he took his eyes off Jesus, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And I've done that, and you've done that. And since we have, aren't you glad that the next line that you read in that text is not, and being disgusted by Peter, Jesus said to him, you idiot. (laughs) Maybe a good drowning will teach you, you know? Or, 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 you know, and Jesus taking an oar began to beat Peter about the head and ears, you know? No, that's not what it says. I'm glad it doesn't say that because I am guilty of this very thing. We all get scared. We all stop trusting. We all have moments of panic. But the text says Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Now, that's what you call a flare prayer. That's just you just fire that bad boy off. You know, you don't have time to craft some ornate, poetic uh, 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 composition that you recite unto the Lord in King James English. Oh, Lord, we cometh before thee, O God, to beseech of thee that thou and thy beatitudineth mercy. There's nothing like that here. This is simple. It's not very articulate, but man, it's got the vital components right here. Okay, three words. Three words. Let's analyze this little prayer here in your notes. This is the anatomy of a sinking person's prayer. What's the first word? Lord. That's perfect. That's who he is. To call him Lord, you are recognizing his sovereignty. He is Lord. He's God. He's sovereign. Let's take the last word, me. Well, that's the opposite of Lord. Little old me. All right? I'm the one in trouble. I'm the object that that is in distress here. And then that middle word, save. Now you're recognizing your greatest need. That's what you need. You need him to save you. And it just so happens that's what he's good at. Very effective prayer right here. You humble yourself, you recognize his power, you express your need. And in verse 31, what happens? Jesus immediately reached 
out his hand, took hold of him, and saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? He didn't say that before he took hold of him. He took hold of him. But he is asking, why did you doubt? Why would you ever doubt me? You see, in your notes, we keep our eyes on Christ, but we remember that even if we are faithless, he is faithful. Aren't you glad your salvation isn't dependent on you? If it were, man, I'd be up the creek every day. And it's easy to get real hard on Peter. You know, people read this text and they read that. What happened to Peter? Took his eyes off Jesus. Oh, that silly Peter. He started looking at his problem. That's why he started to sink. And he cried out, you know, and they tisk, 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 as though we've never done that. Let me tell you something. The tragedy of this story is not Peter uh, sinking and crying out for help. The tragedy is that he's the only one that got out of that boat. The real tragedy is there were 11 other dudes stuck in that boat, relying on their own self-sufficiency. Lord, may that not be us. I think of another time in Israel's history. During the Babylonian captivity, you had the Jews exiled into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And there was an edict that went out. When the music plays, you bow down, you worship the king. And there were three Hebrew brothers... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, no way, not going to do it. And so they were taken, they were bound, and they were cast into the fiery furnace to be incinerated. And as that story goes, you remember how King Nebuchadnezzar, he looked into that fiery furnace, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did we not cast three men into that furnace? Why do I see four? There's a fourth man in there, and he looks like the son of God. Didn't we, didn't we bind those guys? Well, they're walking around, and their, their bonds have been burned off by the flames. You know what? If somebody had been there that night in Mark chapter 6, looking out at that sea, and that, that storm... They might have said, didn't I see 12 guys on that sea? Do I not now see 13? And, and that 13th, he looks like the son of God. And Peter's walking on the waves with him. And those bonds of fear have been burned right off of Peter. This is what God does. He takes the very trial that should scare us witless and he uses it to burn away that which keeps us in bondage. He is the peace speaker. We rely on him. You see, peace is not the absence of your problem. You remember that the next time in your storm. Peace is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of Jesus at all times. Amen. How does this all end? Mark 6, 51. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. And see, there were still things they didn't understand. But they could still have peace. You say, how is that possible that some of them still didn't understand in those faith matters, and yet Jesus allows them to have peace. 
Well, I guess that's the promise of Scripture because in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. We don't need to understand everything. We don't need to understand everything. It will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that he can live in me. I don't have to be perfect. One day I will be when I stand before him, and so will you. But in the meantime, he is patient with us. He sees us. He will come to us in his timing and his chosen manner. And when he comes, we receive him. We draw near to him, and there is peace. And we need to know that. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I I pray that that this word, that we would hide it in our heart, that we would take it, we would apply it as needed, God, and we would be victorious in every storm of life, that the world might look at us and say, wasn't that guy, wasn't that girl in the middle of a storm? Weren't they all alone? Who is with them? Who is helping them through this? And God, may you be so clearly seen in our lives, no matter what we endure, that you are magnified and that others will draw near to you. And we pray this fervently in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.